for the preaching of God's Word as we continue to worship together. I invite you to turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. We are currently in between sermon series here at CRBC. I just finished the book of Daniel, preparing for what comes next. Um, So since we're in between series, and since it's the time of year, Easter being next week, where by and large the church and even the culture is focusing on the death and resurrection of Christ, that is what we're going to be doing here this morning and next week. We're going to look at crucifixion of Christ today, and then we will consider His resurrection next week. Suffering and death of Christ. We'll look at the narrative here in John 19, what that means for us and for our salvation. We'll begin reading in verse 16, and then we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Brethren, this is God's Word. So He delivered Him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, <clears throat> said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. 
For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So he took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes and with cloths and spices as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Father, our God, our Creator, we ask You, in the name of Your Son Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, that You, right now, would set before our eyes the death of Christ, that He died for sin, for our sin. We pray that You would give us a sight of Christ, that we might love Him, that we might adore Him, that we might be comforted by His work on our behalf that we might enjoy the full assurance of our salvation, that it is finished in Him, and that all we must do is receive this with a believing heart, and all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. Oh Father, we pray that You would open the eyes of our hearts this hour, and we ask through the name of our crucified and risen Savior. Amen. It's been said that there are no words more important than the last words of a dying man. When someone has no time left to waste, when someone has nothing left to accomplish, last words tend to give us particular insight into what they value or how they view their life, how they view their death, how they view what comes next, eternity. I think here of uh, the last words of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Uh, We are beggars. This is true, he said on his deathbed. And it kind of encapsulates the entire Reformation that that he helped recover. You know, that that we are beggars. That salvation is a gift from God. That Luther's hope, our hope, is only in free grace given to us in Christ. Last words are important. How much more so when we come to these last words by our Lord Jesus Christ. His last words from the cross, it is finished. It's often been said, I think rightly so, that there are no words in Scripture so sacred. There are no other words so loaded with depth and meaning than this phrase, it is finished. I think we could go on to say that there's nothing more distinctively Christian than what these words encapsulate. I mean, just think about it. Every other religion in the world, every other man-made system of philosophy for living, every other um, ideology of progress and science, 
These words are in stark contrast to those things. It is finished. It's a declaration that that what man and what man-made religion can only strive for, can only hope for, can only try to attain. Jesus says it's over. It's done. It's accomplished. Only Christianity can say it is finished. Only Christianity in these words can, can we rest in what has been accomplished by someone else outside of us rather than what we need to accomplish in and of ourselves. Only Christianity can receive these words and receive the comfort and the rest and the peace and the assurance that, that raises us above all the other difficulties and sorrows of life. Because we know it's for finished. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing more to do. Christ died for me. However, although it's true, it is finished, represent the sum and substance of the Christian faith, of course, you also know it's only when these words are rightly understood and embraced uh, do we receive the blessing of what these words point to. And so today, I want to simply ask and answer a question. What does the Lord mean when He says it is finished? What comes to your mind when you hear Him say from the cross, it is finished? This might not be quite as straightforward as you think, because don't we know, and we'll celebrate and recognize next week, that Christ still needed to rise from the dead? Don't we know that He still had to ascend to the right hand of the Father uh, in order to send forth the Holy Spirit, in order to rule and reign and intercede for His people, in order to build His church? From from then, He comes and returns to, to usher in the new creation. Don't we know that these things are still yet not finished? Don't we know as well that we, even though we enjoy salvation, we still live in a fallen and sinful world? A world racked by sorrows and sufferings and pain and death. So what, what is finished? What do those words mean? Why does he say it is finished when there's still so much yet to be done? Well, today I want you to see that Christ cries out, it is finished, because the cross is that watershed event Right, That foundational watershed event from which all of God's redemptive purposes and blessings flow. Everything that follows in redemptive history, all the way to the new creation, all depends upon and flows out of what Christ accomplished at the cross. In this, we are to see the cross as the beginning of a great triumph. In this, we are to see that Christ will forever be known as the Lamb who was slain. In this, we are to know that everything that happened after the cross, that is happening in our life today, and that what will happen in the consummated future, all depends upon what He finished at the cross. And that's why we really never move beyond the cross. Right? We never really move beyond and say, well, that's great, that's nice, now let's get on to bigger and greater things. It's the sum and substance of Christianity. 
And if the cross is center of God's redemptive purposes, how much more so is it the center of your life and your salvation and your day-to-day fight and struggle and enjoyment and comfort of the salvation that you have in Him? That's what I want you to see today in these words. It is finished. I want to consider three things then. Three things that Christ means when He says it is finished. Simply put, atonement, cleansing, and judgment. Let's consider first, what does Christ mean when He says it is finished? He means that atonement is finished. Atonement. Now, before we get down to verse 30, in those words, it is finished, uh, we need to recap the, uh, the context a little bit. And so, um, I want to do that briefly from ver- beginning of verse 16 all the way down to verse 30. Uh, if we pick up in verse 16, we see that Jesus is headed to the cross. We know that Pilate, uh, the Roman governor there, tried to release Jesus. Uh, ultimately, he was a coward who gave in to the will of the people, so he delivered Jesus over to be crucified. But then we have this very in- interesting incident where he, he nails this, um, uh, when they nail him to the cross in verse 19, Pilate writes this inscription. He puts this sign above Jesus on the cross. Um, and it's a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Important here is that it is written in three different languages. There's some beautiful irony in this because, you know, Pilate wrote better than he knew. This was a sign that publicly proclaimed to Jew and Gentile alike that that Jesus is king. It was a fulfillment of what what Jesus, he, he said himself in John 12, 32, when he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people, all nations to myself. That's what's happening here. Three different languages, representing all the languages of the known world at that time, proclaiming that Jesus is king. I'll mention this because, hang on to it, we're going to come back to this under our third point. But then in verse 23 and following, we read this incident about the soldiers gambling over his tunic. And this too was in fulfillment of scripture uh, that John, uh, uh, John tells us. A tunic that was seamless and could not be torn. Uh, What's the significance of this? Uh, Well, if we had time, I would take you to the Old Testament and back to uh, the kingdom, the first king of Israel, Saul. And if you'll remember, Saul disobeyed the Lord. And as Samuel the prophet announces judgment to him, Saul turns, as Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs his garment and it tears. And the prophet then said to him, Saul... The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. So here with this tunic that could not be torn. We're being told here that Jesus is the king who rules over a kingdom that shall never be torn. Never be divided. Never be rent asunder. Even though the king himself is being executed. So he's king of the Jews. He's king of the nations. He's king over an undivided kingdom. That's the picture that's being painted here. Another important uh, fact about this is that the soldiers gambling over his clothes indicates that Jesus was naked on the cross. There is, of course, imagery in this as well. 
As the second Adam, Jesus takes on the shame of Adam's sinfulness, even down to his nakedness. Just as Adam stood before the tree of judgment naked when he ate the forbidden fruit, Jesus is also naked at his tree of judgment. He's walking in the steps of Adam. He's taking on our shame, our nakedness, our filth. Ultimately, that we might be clothed in those beautiful garments of righteousness. Then we have the episode with Jesus' mother. Jesus makes provisions for his mother after his death, making sure that John cares for her. We see this beautiful picture of Jesus caring for others even as he is being executed. He is concerned about the well-being of those he loves, even though he is the one suffering at the moment. But in this section, we see that a new family is created by his death. We see that baptismal waters run thicker than blood. We see that we care for one another in the church, just as we do for our own flesh and blood. A new new family, a new community is being brought about by his death. So all of this is the background. This is what leads up. And if if you'll notice, in verse 28, Jesus says, after this, knowing that uh, that all was finished, It's only on the basis of these things that that He's proclaimed as King of the nations. That He's he's ruling over an undivided permanent kingdom. That He's bearing the shame and sin of His subjects. That He's creating a new household and a new family and a new community. With all of this in mind, this gets at what He means now when He says, it is finished. So in verse 28, He cries out, I thirst. Of course, he's been on the cross for several hours, exposed to the elements. Practically speaking, he probably needed this drink so that his parched throat could cry out, it is finished. But again, we're told, he did this in order to fulfill Scripture. We know from Psalm 69, 21, says that for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This is in fulfillment of that passage. But more than this, in Psalm 22, the psalmist cries out, My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. This is noteworthy because the psalmist says that he's thirsty. Because God Himself had laid Him in the dust of death. And that's really what we are to see here with Jesus. On the cross, Jesus is enduring the wrath of God. He wasn't being punished for His own sins. God had placed upon Him the sins of His people. God had placed upon Him the very curse of death. And so he cries out, I thirst, so that we see this. So that we know that God had laid him in the dust of death. And there's a world of imagery, there's a world of depth to this meaning as well. Uh, First, I want to bring bring to your mind the story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16, if you remember that story. 
Jesus tells this parable. It's of this rich man. He dies and he goes to a place of torment, we're told. He's in the anguish of flame. But think about the one thing that this man asked for in the midst of this flame and agony. In Luke 16, 24, he says, Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. In that parable in Luke 16, the torments of death and hell are symbolized by an intense thirst. An intense thirst that's indicated here in verse 28 as well when Jesus cries out, I thirst. You see, there's a reason why the Apostles' Creed says that Christ descended into hell. Or uh, better, descended into Hades, the place of the dead. Even if you don't believe that Jesus actually went anywhere other than heaven after his death, with these words, I thirst, we do see that he was undergoing the torments of hell in our place. Furthermore, even when he drinks this sour wine, we are to be reminded of how earlier in John's Gospel he said, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Sour wine points to the bitter cup. Bitter cup, the imagery uh, in in the Old Testament prophets, uh, the bitterness of drinking a bitter cup uh, was symbolic of drinking or enduring the wrath and anger of God. So if we pull this all together and remember from John's Gospel, Jesus promised the woman at the well, I will give you living water so that you will never thirst again. And then in John chapter 7, He stands up and shouts uh, to the crowds, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of water. When we remember these things, we see now that the only way for Him to give life living water is if He Himself takes our thirst. If He Himself drinks the bitter cup that we deserve. For Him to take that in our place, the cup of God's wrath, our thirst, our sin, our shame, so that He might then give us living water instead. What we don't deserve A gift of grace. A gift that only comes through Christ as our substitute in our place. That's the picture here. So it's only upon this. It's only upon Scripture being fulfilled. It's only upon God laying Him in the dust of death. It's only upon drinking the full cup of the wrath of God. Only then does He shout out, it is finished. And that's what he finished. He finished scripture fulfillment. He finished enduring death in our place, the judgment of death. And far from being simply a shout of agony or a shout of defeat, it's nothing less than a shout of conquering triumph. It is finished. Full obedience has been rendered. 
It is finished. Full atonement has been made. It is finished. The wrath of God has been extinguished. It's done. It is finished. He has done all. He has obeyed all. He has endured all. He has suffered all. There's nothing left to say. There's nothing left to do. Hebrews 10.14 By a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what He meant when He shouted, It is finished. But moving quickly, secondly, what else did He mean by it is finished? He also indicated that cleansing as well is finished. Cleansing. So first atonement, second cleansing. Here I want to draw your attention to this famous episode where his side is pierced and blood and water come out. Verse 31 through 37. The normal Roman practice in that day uh, was to leave crucified men hanging on the cross until they died, which often took many days. But in verse 31, we read that it was the Sabbath, and a special Sabbath at that. It was the day of preparation for the Passover Sabbath. And the Jews, um, of course, from Deuteronomy 21, uh, knew that God commanded that the bodies of hanged criminals could not remain on a tree overnight, otherwise the land would be defiled. And so they wanted... The body's taken down, and the Roman government made special provisions for the Jews at that time. Of course, it's astounding hypocrisy. We don't mind crucifying the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, our own Messiah, but we definitely don't want the land being defiled. Heaven forbid that. So they, want the, they, they need to make sure that the bodies are dead so they can be pulled down. So the soldiers come to break the legs of the criminals. Um, they did this with an iron mallet. It's kind of like a, a sledgehammer. And so you can imagine kind of the, the intense pain and shock that would bring. It, it would hasten the death of uh, those crucified because, well, for one, the shock value of having your legs broken with a sledgehammer. Uh, but also they were then unable to push themselves up Uh, with their legs in order to breathe and so uh, they would die they would suffocate uh, essentially and they would die quickly but they come to Jesus he was already dead and so they don't break his legs and John reminds us again this is to fulfill scripture it's a fulfillment of scripture because Jesus is the Passover lamb and the law no bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken But here, what's most central is what happens next. We read in verse 34. One of the soldiers came and pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Both theologians and physicians have often marveled at this incident. And there's, you know, a million speculations as to what this means or why it happened. It's not really common for blood and water to flow um, in such a way after death. Uh, Many of the church fathers um, assert that this was a miracle, actually, because of this. Uh, Recent science, though, has confirmed that when there's severe trauma to the chest, the body hemorrhages fluid, and sometimes that gathers between the rib uh, rib cage lining and the lungs. And in this, we can read this and say, okay, well, we know he's really dead. 
He's not just unconscious or pretending. Otherwise, this blood and water would not flow. But of course, there's a deeper significance to this. A theological significance to this. We know this for sure because of what John says. We also know it because in the book of 1 John, uh, the same author mentions that water and blood is part of the testimony of the Spirit that confirms the truth. So what's this point to? What does the blood and water mean? Well, again, many church fathers see this as a reference to the sacraments. The blood symbolizing the Lord's Supper, the water symbolizing baptism. I'm kind of partial to that illusion. I think that's a striking illusion. Can't be just dismissed out of hand. But really, the only thing we know for sure is what does John's gospel tell us about blood and water? Well, as I mentioned earlier, don't we know that Jesus promised to provide living water to those who thirst? Isn't it striking that he cries out in thirst and the very next thing we read is that this water flows from his corpse? Again, this shows us that Jesus had to die for living water to be given. There's such a great irony here that that this spear was meant to confirm that Jesus was dead. But but paradoxically, paradoxically, if I could say that, paradoxically, in a paradox, the soldier's confirming his death, but his death was really the beginning of life. For his death means, enables living water to then flow to those who believe. This is why the prophets, uh, particularly Ezekiel, looked forward to the last days when, when water would flow out of the temple in Jerusalem. We know from John 2.19 that Jesus declared Himself as the true temple so that from His riven side the waters of life now flow in fulfillment of the prophets. We know in Numbers chapter 20 that Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and from it flowed water that saved the lives of the Israelites. When we get to 1 Corinthians 10, we read that Paul says that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ was was struck with a rod of God's wrath, the staff that was wielded by His own people. And living water burst forth from Him. So while the blood symbolizes and teaches us that the true atonement had been made, the water symbolizes our cleansing, our purification, our sustenance. It is finished means that your sins have been atoned for. But not only this, but through this water, you also have the cleansing and the purifying and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to create in you a new heart day by day. That's what we just sang in Rock of Ages. From His riven side, the waters flow, cleansing us from, uh, blood and water cleanses us from its sin's guilt and its power. The blood cleanses us from guilt, the water cleanses us from sin's power. You have been saved from your sins by His blood. You are being saved from your sin by the water that flows from His side, just as you will be saved from your sin fully and finally at the resurrection at the last day. 
So this is what Jesus meant when he says, it is finished. Not only is the power for justification secured, but the power for sanctification, for you to put off sin and live righteously right now today, was secured at the cross in Christ for you. You know what that means? Forgive me if this comes across the wrong way, but sanctification is not your work. Yes, you're called to obey. Yes, you're told to fight and to strive and to put to death sin. Yes, you're taught to discipline your body, to walk in obedience, to perfect holiness in the fear of Him. But the basis of that is Christ's death, not your efforts. The water preaches that to you. The cleansing power of the Gospel comes from Christ as a substitute in our place in the blood and water that flowed from His side. Thirdly, finally, what is indicated by it is finished? It means that the final judgment has begun. It means the final judgment has begun. Everything is finished so that final judgment can now take place. I want you to notice how John himself responds to these things in verse 35. After the flow, in the, uh, the flow of the blood and water, we read, He who saw it, speaking of John, the writer, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John stops. This is kind of like, you know, um, uh, the record scratch, right? Like, everything has happened, now stop. And he butts into the narrative. He says, hey, 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 hey. I want you to listen to me. I saw these things. I'm not making this up. Right? I'm not just pulling from Ezekiel and pulling from John 2 and pulling from the prophets and just writing a beautiful story of all of these things. I'm not making this stuff up. It's true. I saw it. And I want you to know this. Why? That you may also believe. That's the goal. That's the purpose. He stops here to call us to faith. This by itself should show us that how central um, the, the death of Christ is to the gospel. For it's at this point in the book he's, he butts into the narrative. It's at this point he says, okay, writer here speaking, this is so that you might believe. You need to believe. I'm done telling stories. This, this is critical. You need to believe. And you don't need to believe based upon my words alone. He then adds two Old Testament scriptures to back this up. First one we've already considered. None of his bones will be broken into verse 36. That points to how Jesus is the Passover lamb. But the second one, it's interesting. Verse 37. We heard it earlier in our reading of the gospel. Again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, in, in Zechariah 12, 
Yahweh is talking about how the Jews in their unbelief have pierced him. It's akin to saying they've pierced my heart. They've wounded me with their unrepentant sin. I've been a father to them. I've been a savior to them. Right? And they've pierced me. They've broken my heart. But the turning point of the passage is when they, when they look upon, they finally get a vision, and they see the one they've pierced. And their response is to mourn. It's clear though in the context, some mourn because they realize that judgment is coming. They're mourning because, oh no, look who we have attacked. Oh no. The anger of the Lord is against us. So they're looking upon him with a, with a, a pierced, uh, the one they pierced, with, with kind of a, an air of condemnation or contempt. But others in the passage look upon him with sorrow over the sin, and they mourn and they repent. And then we read just a few verses later, as we heard this morning already in in Zechariah 13.1, that on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. This is all going on in the context of Christ's crucifixion. John is pointing us to the fulfillment of what Zechariah spoke of. And what he's saying is... In the death of Christ, final judgment has now begun. The piercing of God on the cross always leads to either one of two responses. Either mourning over our sin or mourning because judgment is coming, which is unbelief. And brethren, that's no, tr- no less true in our day as well. People either look upon the cross and mourn for how they have sinned treacherously against their God and Creator, or they look upon Him in condemnation. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And they reject the living water. And they invite the eternal condemnation and judgment of God. That's why He calls them to believe right here. That's why He stops. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you through this passage today as well. Every single one of you is seeing this morning the death of Christ on display. It's being announced to you. And God is saying the time is right now. The time is now. You've heard the Gospel now in the death of Christ. You've looked upon Him who was pierced. You've seen the blood and the water flow from His side. Now is the time to believe. Now is the judgment of this world. How do we know this for sure? We'll look at the rest of the narrative to the end of the chapter. John shows how this plays out in real time. That final judgment has begun. Because we get two little uh, notes here about two men. We get in verse 38... Um, just Joseph of uh, Arimathea, and then we get Nicodemus in verse 39. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He did follow Jesus secretly, yet now with the death of Christ, he's very bold. Now he comes out. 
comes into the open and expresses love for Christ. He does what even Jesus' family, even Jesus' disciples don't do. They're not brave enough to do. He goes and asks for the body. And receiving the body, he lays him in a brand new tomb, which was a, a royal barrier, a, a burial as it were. It signifies that he saw Jesus as the king, as Pilate announced to the world. He looked upon him who was pierced and he believed. And he expressed that belief openly. Then there's Nicodemus. We're told that he came to Jesus by night. Every time he's mentioned uh, in this gospel, that little note about night, is, 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 uh, we're reminded of that. Because this, the whole theme of the gospel is that men love darkness rather than light. They don't come into the light because they love their evil deeds. Nicodemus is one who embodies that. He comes to Jesus secretly by night. He is the one who who challenged Jesus in John chapter 3 and presumably walked away in unbelief. But what does he do now? Now he steps out into the light. Now he openly embraces Jesus before all the world. He brings 75 pounds of spices. This was a king's burial. And if we read back to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus had told him in John 3, 5, that you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can that happen? He says, by water and the Spirit. There's that water imagery again. Now the rock of ages has been struck. Now from his riven side, water and blood flow. Now Nicodemus looks upon the one who is pierced and the Spirit brings him new life. He's born again. This is how final judgment enters into human history. And it began at the cross. Everyone who sees him who was pierced either bows in faith and repentance or they look upon Him with scorn to their own condemnation and judgment. This is what it has finished produced. This is the fruit that it bears. This is what is still going on today. This is why the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Final judgment, when we all stand before God, and we all give account to Him for our deeds, you know, in, in large part, it's not going to bring any real surprises. Yeah, it's going to uncover a lot of things that we don't see. But for those who hear the message of the cross, that verdict of the final judgment, we see now. We see now in either belief or unbelief. It's being brought into our age. Atonement, cleansing, and judgment. It is finished. Well, brethren, as we conclude this morning, I'm going to bring this all back around to where we began. We began by thinking about how there are perhaps no other words that best sum up the essence of Christianity better than it is finished. And you know why that's true? It's true because, frankly, we never finish anything, do we? Sin and death prohibit us from ever really finishing the course. 
As creatures, we cannot fulfill that duty that God set before us in creation. We were called to conquer the dust, conquer the earth. But now the earth, the dust conquers us. We return to it. There's no escaping it. We may accomplish great things in life, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, but it's all vanity. What happens when a man dies? He dies just like everybody else. Whatever he accomplished, he leaves to others and they may destroy it. But here, we have that shout of acclamation. That shout that all creation has been longing to hear since the fall. It's done. It's over. And if you're in Christ today, that shout is for you as well. A shout is for you. You can rest your entire life and your entire soul on His finished work. Now you can say, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Or in God with Christ. My life is hidden in Him. Now I am a part of a kingdom that He has built and I receive rather than building it for myself. Now I know that my sins are forgiven. They'll never be counted against me. And He's poured out of me this sanctifying, cleansing Holy Spirit to lead me fully and finally to my eternal home. Now the verdict of the final judgment, it's already been declared to me. I've already heard it. It's already been announced. Justified, forgiven, eternal life. I never have to wonder what will be said on that last day. I don't have to worry about my works and whether my good works are going to be enough to get me over the hump. God has already told me now, final judgment, you are eternally justified and saved and redeemed. And brethren, this is how we serve a Savior who has done it all, who has accomplished all, who has performed all, who has perfected all. Everything that is necessary for your salvation. And all we are called to do is rest and receive His finished work by faith. All we must do is accept this with a believing heart. Brethren, that is, that is news that you can hang your soul upon. That is news. Those are words. It is finished. That provide a world of eternal comfort and peace and hope. I pray that by the grace of God as you look upon the death of Christ today, that you hear those words and that you receive those words with a believing heart. That is the watershed event of everything in your salvation both today and tomorrow and yesterday. That is what God, through His Word, is calling us to believe and receive this morning. I pray that He would give us the grace to do just that. Amen. Let's pray.